70,000 people died, and some of them were just, uh, uh, j just evaporated. There's nothing left of them. They just... Vaporized. Vaporized. Imagine, you're 18 years old. You've been at sea for months. You've watched kamikazes try to destroy your ship. You're told that a bomb of devastating consequence has been dropped on a Japanese city, and your aircraft carrier is headed there to pick up hundreds of POWs who've been housed in nearby prison camps. Some of them have been subjected to torture and lack of food for many months. The one factor that brings relief is the war has ended, peace is at hand. But then you witness the price of peace. You walk with camera in hand what is left of the streets of Nagasaki. And you witness firsthand the newfound destructive power of the atom. Your name is Howard Hill. You were 18 then, you are now 96, and you remember. Howard, you graduated from Proviso Township High School in 1944. In June, June of 44. 1944. Two months later, you're in the service. August, my birthday was August 29, and I enlisted in the Navy before that. And you're 17. Yes. So you need a parental permission slip. Correct. That's right. And so what did you, you went to your mom? I went. To, well, I I don't remember that, but went to her, and we went down to the Navy uh, recruiting station down on LaSalle Street in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And that's where we signed up. But you needed permission to do that. Oh, yes. Yeah, written permission. And and she went with you? Yes. Oh, yeah. She had to sign, it literally sign. Oh, in the presence of the recruiter? Yes, yes. So what did she think about that? I'm ashamed to say so, but I never asked her about that. Uh, it's just every 100% of the Americans were patriotic. They did everything. Factory workers could work at any age. You know, they relaxed the age limits. Everybody did what they could. You know, like we collected aluminum foil from gum wrappers and cigarette wrappers, and we collected uh, tin cans and saved gasoline. The national speed limit was 35 miles an hour to save gasoline. And we, we, we walked and collected in the, in the gutters, collected rubber bands, we collected string. So everybody at, at any age just did everything they could for the war effort. So... I don't know what her feelings were, and and being being gone for 16 months, not knowing where I was, I just never asked her how she felt about that. She wrote you very often, though. Every day. And I imagine she expressed some pride in your service then. Yes, absolutely. My dad had been in the American Legion for 50 years, eventually, and anyway, she was in the Women's Auxiliary, and uh, you're right, she would pass that information along about where I was, and... What I, what I was doing. Your dad, the, your dad was Navy in yes. World War One. Is yeah. that why you chose to go Navy? I think it was. Yes, I went to Great Lakes, and I went there for boot camp for two months, and then after that, they sent me to a diesel mechanics school for two months, and I graduated that and was sent out to San Francisco to pick up a ship. But then they learned that you had been working at Jefferson Electric in Bellwood, so you had electrical. Electric aptitude. Well, I I didn't really. I worked for Jefferson Electric as a teenager uh, when I was in high school, and we made uh, uh, ballast transformers for uh, Lionel trains and fluorescent lights. That's it's all I knew was making those things. So when I got to the ship, 
They said, oh, we see you work at Jefferson Electric Company. We need electricians. You are now one. <laughs> so after all that... After all that schooling, they put me in somewhere. And I oh, think, you fooled them. I think it was the You're best job on the them. ship. <laughs> it was wonderful. Well, felt very, I felt very safe. And you would learn later on that there was a secret project Well, there was underway. a secret department at Jefferson Electric Company, and, and no one knew what they made there. Even my high school friends that worked in that department didn't know what they made. It wasn't Transformers. It was something else. And, of course, subsequently, almost exactly a year later, uh, at Nagasaki, Japan, I see the results of the detonation device that was actually manufactured in Bellwood, Illinois. So the the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki was detonated by something that was made at Jefferson, at Elec- Jefferson Electric yes. in Bellwood, While I was Illinois. there, yes. <laughs> what a coincidence. I imagine so, yes. Was there a sense when you enlisted in 1944 that the tide had turned that we were on the way to a win, or was there still some doubt? No, there was still doubt. There was. It was a full-fledged war. Uh, the thing I like to tell school kids, too, is that uh, our wars all have been fought over there, none over here. I don't know if you remember World War One had that song that says, Over, over there, there, over there, there, send the word, send the word. But none are done here on our shore, and that's, that's right. what we were trying to uh, avoid. And there was great fear when, on the West Coast in particular. On the West Coast, when I got on my ship and went to Hawaii, when we got to Hawaii, there was barbed wire on Waikiki Beach to offset any invasion. So you are assigned to the Shenango, USS yeah. Shenango. Yes. Tell me about that ship. Well, it was a it was a converted tanker. We carried three million gallons of aviation fuel. Uh, we could refuel other ships. It was the, the length of three football fields. So it was it, it was larger than a, what they call a jeep carrier. It was converted though from it was converted from a, ta- o- from a tanker from, from an oiler tanker to a landing field for, uh, I mean, a, a carrier. It was an escort carrier. Escort carrier. Right. Four ships were identical. And how many uh, how many planes did you carry? We had 32 planes, and uh, the personnel were 1,500. And your job was being an electrician. I was being a communications electrician. I was a projectionist. We had a movie from stateside every night, so I would show a movie in our hangar deck. So if anything goes wrong with the movie, it's Howard's it my responsibility. Fault. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever have any difficulty with that? Or I don't remember. Everything? It was just, you know, okay. the, it was just the real films that we had, you know, change reels and, uh, in the hangar deck. We could do a lot of things on the ship. We had we had track meets on the flight deck. We had uh, skeet shooting on the uh, ta- on the fan tail. We'd shoot at targets that our airplanes dragged along behind them. Uh, we played volleyball on uh, the elevators and basketball. And you also made ice cream on the ship. We made ice cream. We had powdered milk and powdered eggs and powder. Everything was powdered, of course. Uh, but we didn't. The milk we didn't like, so uh, we would make ice cream on that, and then we give that to the destroyers that refueled us, or we refuel them. Well, this sounds like a vacation, but it wasn't. <laughs> it was not. <laughs> it was pretty ugly stuff that it you was. were going to eventually encounter. Yes.
you encountered some nasty weather at some point. Oh, time. yes, we did. And what did they do on board ship? It was amazing when you think about the Pacific Ocean, how many thousands of miles it is wide, that you can be out there in the middle of the ocean and see nothing, and the water is as smooth as glass. You don't think of a body of water that big without waves, and we experienced that many, many times. But you have a hurricane at one we, point we, in time. We were, we were involved with a hurricane coming toward us, so uh, our ship and many others pulled into a harbor called Sasebo, Japan, and anchored there to uh, outlast the hurricane. And uh, I don't know why they selected me, but I was selected to go up on the flight deck and they tied a rope around my waist and some men on the other end of the rope would hold it so I wouldn't get blown away. And I held up in the air one of these three-cup anemometers that measures wind velocity. And it measured 140 miles per hour. And fortunately, I, I, that's all I remember about that. Yeah, so Howard Hill has hurricane experience for Ex sure. Experience. What are you thinking when you're holding this little thing in your hand and it's spinning around at 140? I probably was thinking, I, I want to get out of here, <laughs> get it done, <laughs> over with. Oh, were you frightened? I don't remember that. I don't remember that anything frightened me at that age. Yeah, should have, but it didn't. Maybe, maybe. So the Shenango starts, and you have in your scrapbook here, and you, by the way, you've kept a remarkable record of where you were and what you saw during your time overseas. And one of the little displays you have in your scrapbook here is where you went. So Guadalcanal Guadalcanal was, was our first stop, yes. What happened there? Uh, not much. Uh, we, we anchored there. I remember swimming there uh, in the, in the uh, ocean, and we had uh, sharpshooters up on our flight deck with rifles, to shoot sharks that would come near us if we were swimming. And you were among the people I, who went I, in with the sharks? I, I was among them. The only thing I remember about that is we caught uh, uh, a, a, uh, an inflammation of our body called impetigo. Oh, yes. We call it the galloping crud. And they used <laughs> to put purple gentian on it. To... Did you come down with that? Oh, yeah. Everybody on the ship did. It's very contagious. <laughs> So you go swimming and you get impetigo, impetigo and you're swimming with the sharks. Yes, yes. And then from there we went up to the Philippines and, and on our way up to Okinawa and Tokyo and Nagasaki. And the nature of your military experience changes quite dramatically then when you're – this is preparation. This is Operation Iceberg. Uh, you're getting ready to go into Okinawa, and that's pretty serious stuff. That's the biggest – Naval amphibious operation in the Pacific in World War II. We lost more more men in that battle on the, in the Pacific than any other. And uh, that day for us, it was payday, I remember. It was April Fool's Day, and it was invasion day. We sent our airplanes off to bomb Okinawa and help with the invasion. What did you think when you're on ship? And I know you said you're confined and you're, you're in a cubicle for Yeah, we're in the exact center of the ship. Right. So you're not witnessing things from deck. That's correct. Deck, yes, yes. But you we know had, what's going on. We had battle stations. When they'd, when they'd sound battle horn, uh, we would go to our stations, and everybody had one. Uh, Okinawa lasted. The battle lasted for almost three months. Yes, That's yes. That's astounding. Was every day the same? 
all I know is our planes took off every day and, and went off to either drop bombs or, or uh, shoot uh, in Okinawa. When they'd return, was there any communication with the pilots as to what they saw and what they encountered? Not for, not for me, no. No. I, I, when they would return, I would. it was something I enjoyed doing. I'd go up topside and, and sit there and watch them land, especially at night. Uh, the landing signal officer who signaled planes coming in, tell them how high they were, how low they were, uh, whether they were level or not. He had lighted uh, wands that he would wave at the planes. It was just fun to watch them come in and land. One of the things that everybody on board the Shenango had to be mindful of constantly was an attack by kamikazes. Kamikaze pilots. They were 16- and 17-year-old Japanese boys that had never flown. They were taught to fly a particular airplane. Part of the downfall of, of them was that they carried a, an 800-pound bomb, and the airplane they were using was designed to carry a 500-pound bomb. So they weren't as maneuverable and agile as a, a plane should be and would be. So they were pretty much designed to die regardless of what happened. One of your responsibilities was to go after bases, as I understand it. Yeah, and airfie airfields. Airfields. The primary target for kamikaze was air aircraft carriers. Yeah. They, they wanted us more than any other ship. Uh, did you have a, a close encounter with a kamikaze? We had one that came close, and we shot it down, and it fell into the water before it hit us. But uh, the other the other three sister ships all got hit by kamikaze pilots. Yeah. If we had a if we had a plane that came in and it was damaged, we'd just push it overside over overboard right away to make room for the next one landing. Did you know at that point in time that you're all preparing for the invasion of the mainland? mainland no, Japan? no. We had a newspaper daily on the ship, uh, and they would tell us the news that came from uh, the United States. But uh, we did not know. Uh, the Japanese had a uh, propaganda person called Tokyo Rose. Of course. And she was on the radio telling Allied people good things about Japan. Greetings, everybody. This is your number one enemy, your favorite playmate, Orphan Anne, a radio Tokyo. The little sunbeam whose throat you like to touch. We're ready again for a vicious assault on your morale. Did you? Did they have her broadcast? Oh, on yes, the, on, yeah. You carried it on the yeah. Shenango? Oh, yes, yeah. Did, so you listened to Tokyo we, Rose? We, we could listen to her, yes. <laughs> and did you believe her? No, not at all. And everybody knew that this was propaganda. Oh, oh yes, yes. Well, a certain amount of time passes by, and, and is it known to you that the Battle of Okinawa has been won by the U.S.? Is not, that pretty clear, or are you kind well, of all still in the dark? I, I don't remember that we did. Our daily newspaper would tell us that and <laughs> just tell us what was going on. And then, of course, General MacArthur ordered us to go to Nagasaki. Did the word come to the men on board the Shenango that the bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima? Did you know that? Uh, not immediately, no. When you were in Nagasaki, did, did you know that one had been dropped on Hiroshima? Not really, no. No, we didn't. So nobody, only thing that you guys know is that this enormous bomb has been dropped. That's what we heard, and that's when we were ordered to go to Nagasaki. So tell me about going to Nagasaki. Well, we went to Nagasaki, uh, into Nagasaki Harbor, picked up a Japanese pilot who would direct us through the channel so we wouldn't hit any uh, unseen things in the water. A lot of dead bodies floating in the water. The hospital ship Haven 
was there ahead of us. Our reason for being there was to uh, repatriate Allied prisoners of war that had been in Japanese prison camps. There were 17 prison camps within 10 miles of Nagasaki. So they would be brought to the hospital ship for treatment and uh, getting bathed and medicated and all that, and then brought to our ship. And we could put 1,500 cots in our hangar deck, and we brought them out of Nagasaki to Okinawa to be sent off to their home countries. And uh, most of these were British, people from England, Australia, Dutch, very few Americans. But they had been held, most of them anyway. They had been held. A year more sometimes, yes, two years. a long time. And uh, uh, the one comical thing that I remember one of them telling us, I said they didn't know what was going on with the bombs neither, uh, but they did experience, they said, pigs were knocked over by the concussion from the bomb in their prison camp. <laughs> Well, a lot of them saw the bomb. They saw it go off. They didn't know what it was, this huge, bright light. And it was like a, a giant, one of them described it as a giant fluorescent light bulb. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. Uh, but they witnessed this. So the bomb was dropped at a certain elevation. And they dropped it intentionally at 1,600 feet above the ground. And what was the purpose in that? To save uh, lives, to create the minimum number of deaths just to destroy buildings, destroy airfields, uh, anything other than people. Nonetheless, there were still seventy thousand seventy thousand people. people died, and some of them were just uh, uh, just evaporated. There's nothing left of them. They just vaporized. Vaporized. And the men who were in the camps, and the camps were not far away. Oh, and so, you know, close enough for them to yeah, have ten witnessed miles, the Ten bomb. miles away, they could, yes. And presumably they didn't suffer any ill effects as did, They did not, no. At least we knew Correct. at the time. Yes. You then are able to go into the streets of Nagasaki. And this is how long, how many weeks have passed since the A-bomb was dropped? This was three weeks after the bomb. Okay, we there. you're three weeks after the bomb, and you are allowed to go into what's left of Nagasaki. Nagasaki. Would you describe what that place looked like? It looked, it looked similar to the hurricane, hurricane that just hit Florida, except oh, it was much worse than that. Everything was flattened. It was just debris everywhere, the hospital, uh, uh, other big buildings uh, were gone. There was just debris everywhere. Nothing was, very few things were, were still standing. What did you think about the power of the atom at that point? I don't think I did think about it. I, I, I don't know. Pretty young age, I was pretty naive about a lot of things. Uh, and the Japanese by then, you knew, had surrendered. The war was Well, they over. had surrendered. And, and, of course, the Japanese people, that we, they, they couldn't speak English. But as we, as we walked around or drove by, well, drove by riding on a truck, they would bow to us and they would salute us and were very cordial. They just didn't know what had happened. Uh, in fact, there were people in caves for two years afterward that came out and didn't know that the war was over. This must have been an, a surreal experience for you. 
to know that the war is over, which is a great thing, but the degree of devastation here and a new era has begun. I, I guess it was. I said I still, I, I didn't have a lot, of, at that age, I didn't have a lot of feelings about it. Or, what do you think now, looking back on it, though? Oh, I think it was just a terrible thing. I think it was needed, but uh, it was a terrible thing to, to uh, have to do it in that manner. And that's why today we're avoiding that. Hopefully. Hopefully. When you're walking the streets of Nagasaki, you also you have with you a Kodak camera. Yes. And you start Box taking camera. pictures. A few. But they turn out to be pretty valuable pictures, right? Yes, yes. And so you're, you've are you got them, and you put them in your enormously big scrapbook here yeah. of all your recollections. And they prove to be valuable down the road because they wind up where? Well, the, the entire, I, 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 don't know, I don't understand to this day. Well, I guess I do understand it. I save a lot of things. I keep a lot of records. Uh, I, I have a 92-page scrapbook of things, uh, a lot of things that I just picked up and saved. And part of what I saved are uh, 10 of those photographs of Nagasaki destruction. And at the and the entire book is now at the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. They had only one photograph. So they were very happy and receptive to getting the 10 that I had. And they photocopied the entire book. So it's a it's a historic book now for everybody to view. So it's important to be a historian, isn't it? I guess so. <laughs> I guess <laughs> you took so. a lot of valuable pictures, as it turned out. Did you think about, later on in life, did you think about the importance of having taken those pictures? Only that I guess I feel kind of proud that I, I have them and no one else does. And now that they're available to all people in New Orleans. Now, when you're in Nagasaki... You don't have any protective gear on. You're, oh, no, not at all. You're, you're walking amidst no, destruction created by the atom. Correct. And you don't have any protection. No, uh, I don't know how much of this you want to save, but uh, when I got back home, and uh, well, it's been a number of years afterward before I went to Heinz Hospital to get medical benefits, uh, Heinz Hospital, VA Hospital, has a doctor that gives only uh, physical examinations to veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange in Vietnam, I think it was, yes. and ionizing radiation from World War II. And I was exposed to ionizing radiation. So in that examination, the doctor looked at me and he said, do you smoke? And I said, no, I've never smoked. I said, "We, when we go on liberty and they put us off on an island, they'd give us uh, two beers and five cigarettes. And my buddy and I, Dean, we didn't need either one of them, so we sold them to other sailors who wanted more than their share. Hmm. So uh, we didn't we didn't smoke, and we slept in a separate compartment on the ship. And instead of being in a compartment with a hundred sailors, we each he, the two of us had our own special room, uh, the degaussing room, which means magnetizing. Uh, the Japanese would sew a lot of magnetic mines to destroy or damage ships. And so the, the gener motor generators were designed to demagnetizing a ship. And uh, so that's where we slept all, all of our time. 
So anyway, the, back to this examination, the doctor looked at, at, at So we were away from cigarette smoke. So this doctor said, well, he said, I see evidence of nicotine in your spine. This is 70 years after I was in the Navy. So that ought to be a deterrent to anybody to, to learn that it's <laughs> that long for somebody who didn't smoke. But he found no negative effects from the no. ionized radiation no, that you're exposed I, I, to. No, I get benefits from the Veterans Administration, but it's for hearing, not for radiation. <laughs> but because you were exposed, you are what's known as an atomic veteran. veteran. That's correct, yes, yes. Does that provide special benefit? <laughs> no. For, just, from VA? No, no. No? No, you just got the title. It's just, you know, just, <laughs> it's kind of an honor, yes. Yeah, right, right. There, there aren't a lot of people that can say that. Uh, let me come back to the, the uh, fellows who were freed from the prison camps. They were mostly non-Americans, Correct. at least yes. on the shipments that you guys made. Yes. You'd take them to Okinawa, and then they would be— They'd send them off to Holland send them or, off to, or England or Australia. Were you aware of the level of torture that those men went through? Uh, somewhat. I, I, I don't know that I had said this. We're from Maywood, Illinois, and that's where the Matan— 33rd tank car was from, and they were they were the primary bunch of veterans that were in the death march at Bataan, and most of them died in that. So we were aware of that situation. So this was kind of their experience in the prison camps, to me, was similar to what they exposed at the Bataan march. When you came home then, after your experience, you got to talk in person to your parents— did you ever share any of what you saw with them, or did you just put it away? I yeah, I don't remember that I did. I mean, I, I assembled this scrapbook, you know, over the years, and no, I don't. I just don't remember what <laughs> anything. As I said, we weren't allowed to tell what battles we had been in and and where we had been, so our mail was censored. And your mom told you that when you came home, you yes. realized oh, yeah, the degree yeah. of censorship that they exercised. Yes, that's correct. And about the mail, I don't know, did I mention the mail, the mail? Yes. The victory mail? No, go ahead. During the war, to save space and weight, uh, they had what they call victory mail, V-mail. And uh, they would take letters that my mother had written or that I had written, and they would put them through a microfilm. And one sack of microfilm V-mail would replace 39 sacks of regular paper mail. And so that's how we communicated and got our letters and things that the destroyers would bring us when we were refueling them. Uh, the other experience, the comical experience, I don't know if they're going to lead up to that, but when we were in Tokyo uh, a week or so after the truce was signed, my buddy and I, Dean, were walking around town and we were looking for a, a washroom, a place to, to go and relieve ourselves, and we couldn't find anything. Finally, we saw a building that resembled uh, a bathroom, and we walked in there. And here there were about 100 naked Japanese women sitting around a pool. It actually was a bathhouse, and we had, didn't know that. Oops. The, the next day when we went there, there were English signs on that building. <laughs> <laughs> you made the unwelcome so, entrance. So, <laughs> what did you say? I don't remember we said anything. And they, just, and they, of course, didn't understand what we would say. Okay, just back. Time just, to back out. It was just comical. High school kids enjoy hearing that story. Oh, yeah, right, for sure. <laughs> Speaking of that, you've been very involved in Operation Education, Honor Flight Chicago's effort to let kids, different generations, know about what your generation and others have gone yes, through. Yes, primarily, yes. Now, what do you want 
the kids to know? What messages do you do you give them over time? Well, I guess I'd like them to know how how much patriotism there was. Literally, a hundred percent of people. My mother worked in a an aircraft factory. I worked in a factory at, at fourteen years old. Uh, we collected, as I said, a lot of rubbish and stuff. It was just to let people know that we served because we served. We kept aware wars from happening over here. They were all over there. I think that's an important thing that they should realize, that we've never had anything on our shore. Do the kids ask you good questions? Oh, they sure do. They're, they're very, very attentive. I went to uh, Maine Township High School and gave a talk, and there was a volunteer auditorium there. 1,800 students were there. They did not have to be. It was so quiet there. It was just amazing. The thing that it amazed me is that they, they wanted to hear about this. That's pretty they, astounding. They, they you have wanted, that many kids who are willing to come and be quiet and listen and then yes, ask good questions. Yes, yes. What kind of questions do they ask? Oh, well, the, the kind of the things that you've just asked me. <laughs> and you tell them the story about interrupting the ladies in the bathhouse. That's so. the thing they get the biggest <laughs> chuckle out of, yes. Yeah, everybody can relate to that, I guess. <laughs> and some of them were my age. I'd say, you know, you're 18 years old. That's what I was. That's the thing I think that makes the kids really sit up and take notice, that they realize that when you went through all this stuff, they are that age that, now. Yeah, that's one of the things I do mention, yes. Well, they can relate to that, right? I would hope they remember that. Uh, I enjoy doing it, and uh, the kids and the people that are receptive to this are, are eager to learn. They didn't realize what, uh, what we went through and what we, what we sacrificed, what everybody sacrificed. Lessons of the past are enormously important for us to know and understand. And I don't think they're getting a lot of that in schools these days. You know, they're not getting cursive writing, you know, as an example of things they're not getting. Mm-hmm. Well, Howard, keep talking. <laughs> you know, keep giving those lessons. It's been a pleasure, Howard. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is an honor for me. Oh, man. It's an honor for me. Thanks. (laughs) You're welcome. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure that you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit us at honorflightchicago.org. Honor